great having you with us this morning. I'm excited for what God's going to do in his word. You know, five years ago right now, if you rewound the tape and saw what Phil and Sarah were doing, and I'm Phil, the family pastor, by the way, if you've never seen me up here before, I get to oversee birth through young adult and just have loved it here, just love investing in our youth. But five years ago right now, Phil and Sarah, Phil and Sarah were packing up the boxes in our house to move to Mansfield, Ohio. And if you've ever moved, how many of you ever moved? It's probably almost everyone in the room, right? How many of you like moving? <laughs> Unanimous. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Moving is not a fun process. And you know, it, it was a few weeks from now, but we were packing up on moving day, the most stressful day of your life, right? And you're packing the truck full, and we made a fatal error. The size of the truck was about two feet too short. You know, and it's like this slow realization, right? You're like, oh no. And there's no going back, is there? I mean, we're driving nine hours from Virginia to Ohio. There's no, I mean, this is the truck. We've got all our friends there loading it up. It's just like, so we start looking around and we're like, what do we leave? You know, it's like, Uh, I kind of really don't like that piece of furniture. Yeah, we'll we'll buy something new. You know, what about this? There was like this plastic sandbox. And I was like, really, Sarah, let's get a new sandbox. It's okay. And she's like, but it's a sandbox. You know, know, I got down to just a little bit. We were packing. And you start packing stuff in between. You start putting your kids in so you can pack around them. You know, (laughs) it was that bad. And so we get to the point where we just got a little bit of space left. And I look and I see my lawnmower. Now, when we bought this house, this is our first house, we were really blessed that in the shed was this old Honda lawnmower. And it, so it was already probably 10 years old. I'd used it for three or four years. Um, it had, I mean, the blade was chipped. You had to pull it a few times to get it started. I was like, hey, this is my opportunity to get a new lawnmower. Yes. He's like, I don't think it's going to fit, Sarah. I'm sorry. It's not going to make it. I'll get a new one. You know, I think I kind of need a new one anyway. She's like, okay, yeah, sure, that sounds good. I was like, yes. Biggest mistake of my life. I've been in Mansfield five summers. I've gone through five lawnmowers. (laughs) That Honda, year after year, man, I didn't change the oil. I didn't empty the gasoline for the winter. It just kept going. But everything I've, I buy, I bought three different lawnmowers. I returned one, got a new one back. I bought the cheapest one at Walmart. That's the one I've gotten the most luck with. I finally bought an electric mower, and the battery died. It was on warranty, but of course it takes four months to get the new battery with a warranty, right? And so all that to say, I think I should have left one of my kids in Virginia and put the lawnmower in. <laughs> Just stay with some friends for a little while. We'll come get you eventually. So... But you know, whether it be, and if I had to be honest, some of my lowest days emotionally over the last five years have been that moment when my lawnmower died halfway through mowing the lawn. Okay, and I don't know if you ladies can relate, but guys, isn't that the worst thing in the world? And in that moment, man, I've experienced anger and frustration. I, if you know me, I hate spending money, okay, at all. And so the fact that now, not only am I not doing what I probably really don't even want to do, But now I've got to go and spend more money to fix this one or buy another one. I'm just like, why didn't I keep that Honda? You know, and whether it's a situation like that, or maybe it's something far more serious, 
Maybe it's a health challenge that you're going through. Don't we hang our hat of disappointment and even, even our joy and our hope on things of this world far too often? Maybe it's a family struggle or a marriage or your children, these things that are far more significant than just a lawnmower. Maybe a job loss, and you honestly can't remember the last time you had extra money in the bank. Maybe it's a school closing. Will we go online this week or not? Maybe it's a pandemic that's affecting millions of lives. Maybe, now let's get real, maybe it's an election that may or may not have gone the way you wanted. And it just causes us to stew in disappointment and despair, whether it's a lawnmower or a loss of a loved one. And we just, we get stuck, don't we? With our eyes focused on this one thing or things. And my hope this morning is that we can have a perspective change that causes us to see the glory of God above everything else. That God's glory would become the transcendent reality of our lives that no matter what we're going through, I can fix my eyes on the glory of Christ. No matter what suffering I'm going through, I can say, Lord, I know you have a plan and I can trust you. The goal of this morning is to realign our affections and our attentions towards what I think is the most significant reality and calling that we have as followers of Jesus. The glory of God. The glory of God. We're in the midst of this series in 1 Corinthians called Different. We are, we've continually been seeing how Paul is telling the Corinthian church, your lives need to be different than the world and those around you. We should be distinct. And God wants us to individually and collectively be different, right? It's not just me and my life. It's us and our lives. We should be different. It should be evident. And this is especially true in regard to what our purpose is as followers of Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.31 unpacks this. And we're going to use this this morning. We're going to take a slight detour away from 1 Corinthians and unpack this idea of the glory of God. In 10.31 he says this, So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You remember from last week when Dan was preaching in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, remember, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You see, this motif of the glory of God is flushed throughout scriptures. And I'm going to have some verses on the screen we're going to be running through real quick. But I want you to see this idea of the glory of God. Because I really want us this morning to reframe our perspective from all the things that maybe distract our attention. The things that cause us to check the news feed or to see what's going on. To know what's the case count for today. And I want us to get our eyes and our focus on something different. Something greater. The glory of God. In Isaiah 6, 8, Isaiah has this vision of the throne of God, the throne room. And around the throne of God are these seraphim, and they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. He's speaking prophetically. This will come about. Everyone will see it. God's glory will be manifested to all. Matthew 5.16, Jesus speaking to his disciples. 
on the Sermon of, of the Mount, right? He says, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to God, your Father who is in heaven. You see, the whole purpose of us living different lives isn't so people look up to us so that they say, man, you are unbelievably cool. Like, wow, I want to be like you. No, it's so that they would glorify God, that they would be drawn to our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in all of his glory. All of creation exists for the glory of God. Every person that has ever existed or will exist was created to see, savor, and share the glory of God. And that's where I want to sit this morning. I want us to sit in that reality that you were created for the glory of God. If you're sitting here today, God made you for a purpose. His glory. His glory. I'm afraid that I've already lost some of you. You're like, man, Phil, you left me behind in the religious jargon in that list of verses. And I want us to see God's glory. You know, it's one of those um, Christian phrases that we throw out there, but do we really grasp what it means? It's a Christian vernacular that we use, but it often lacks power because I don't think we have this real true understanding of it. So what is God's glory? John Piper would define it as the manifest beauty of his holiness. Like, man, that doesn't help, John. You know, <laughs> That's a step closer, the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is seeing and savoring and sharing the wonder of who God is. His character, his majesty, his person is on display. Think of it this way. I don't know if any of you have seen some of these sunrises lately. One blessing about the time change, right? And seen the beauty of some of the sunrises or sunset and the color that is there. And sometimes it's like the word beauty doesn't adequately describe it. And if you were to try to, you know, take a picture, you're like, come on, phone. Come on, you can do it. It doesn't quite, quite grasp it, does it? In all its glory. You might try to describe it to your friend. Oh, there was pink and there was purple and there was blue. But it just it doesn't convey the majesty, the beauty of that moment. Or think of a wedding day. I had the uh, honor of a week ago of being at a wedding of our student director, Alex Rivas and Alyssa Leach. I think his parents are right up here. And we were celebrating their unity. And, and just think of a bride on her wedding day. I mean, she's just in all of their purity and beauty, just decked out in, in this gown that has been prepared beforehand. And, you know, in that moment, her character shines through the love for the spouse. And you can't just say, oh, yeah, she looked beautiful. It's not enough. It's not enough. And that's why we use the phrase, she was in all her glory, right? In all her glory, her beauty, grace, and kindness. She was set apart from everyone else. I think two words that relate to this idea of the glory of God are beautiful and holy. You see, God is beautiful and glorious unlike anything else. He's incomparable. It's almost impossible to describe the glory of God. Why? Because there's no comparison. He breaks the curve. He's off the scale. He's completely other. And so all we can do is just make up this word, glory. And we see over and over throughout Scripture, people encounter the glory of God. And their response is just awe and worship and obedience. And that's what I want us to do this morning. Because I think when we take our eyes off the glory of God, our lives suddenly become darker. 
And in the midst of darkness, God wants us to see the light of all lights, the Father of lights, who does not change and in whom, in whom is no shifting shadow. We have a God who is glorious. He is glorious. Now, what does it mean to live for the glory of God? My hope is that after this morning, we walk away with a heightened desire to see, savor, and share in the glory of God. See, God's glory is so great that it should transcend our circumstances. God's glory is never changing, even in the midst of a 2020. God's glory is not surprised by 2020. He's not like, oh man, I wasn't planning for this. This year caught me off guard. No, God's glory transcends all of it. In your lowest time, in your highest point, on the mountains and in the valleys, God's glory remains. And that is why we can worship him. Today we're going to look at three places in Scripture where I think God's glory was most powerfully demonstrated. All right, and so we're going to be jumping around a little bit. This is going to be a little different, so hang on tight. You know, you're with a youth pastor up here. You can do it. You can do it. All right, the first place we're going to be is in Exodus 34 and 35. So if you have your Bible, turn there. We're going to have some key verses up on the screen. But you know the context if you've been in church for a while. If you're new, you've got some catch-up to do, but hopefully we can, uh, we can bring you along. I want to set the stage for you. The people of Israel have been in bondage for 430 years in Egypt. God raises up a leader named Moses to lead them out. He calls him to lead his people out of Egypt. He does so by these unbelievable demonstration of God's power through these plagues that take down literally the most powerful empire in the world at the time. And God frees his people and they depart. You know, you remember the story, they're chased at that point, Pharaoh lets them go, but he chases them and God miraculously delivers them through the Red Sea. Remember Prince of Egypt, old school movie, right? And the ocean crushes the army of the most powerful empire in the world. He frees them. They, they then journey to the mountain of God, where God initially gave Moses this calling, this task on his life. He returns and says, okay, God, I'm going to come back here. What are we going to do next? Moses goes up and meets with God. And you remember, the people of Israel have seen the glory of God. Can you imagine having seen the plagues of Egypt? Your, your God has done this. Your God has delivered you 430 years of bondage, and we're free. And we're free. They've seen that. They saw the Red Sea part and they walked through it. And Moses goes up to receive the law of God and the Mosaic Covenant, right? And what do the people do? They build a golden calf, an idol to worship. And in the midst of that, you know, Moses, God says, go back down. People are misbehaving, you know, it's kind of like, get down there. It's kind of like my kids are in the basement, you start hearing noise. It's like, hey, Phil, can you go down and take care of that? You run down. But it's like, Moses, you need to get down there. He goes down, and he's so filled with anger and rage at the short-sightedness of the people of Israel that he throws the tablets of the covenant of God, the testimony of God, and shatters them on the side of the mountain. It was said as it was written with the very finger of God, and he just shatters them. With rage. God, Moses deals judgment on some of the, those in rebellion. And then he goes back and says, I'm going to go back and try to intercede on behalf of you. So that God doesn't just smite all of you out. And God has a conversation with Moses like, you know, maybe I will. Maybe I will smite all of them out. Maybe they do deserve that. And I'll just start over with you. And, and Moses intercedes. And he says in the midst of this, God says, you know, grants that he will forgive the people. And he says in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, 
please, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And sometimes we miss the context of that phrase. It was in the midst of God's forgiveness and compassion on the people of Israel. Look at everything that God had done for them. And here they are so short-sighted. And he says, who are you, God? You know, you would think if you were Moses, you've already seen his glory. I mean, you saw the parting of the Red Sea. You saw the fire come down from heaven. You saw every firstborn killed. You saw the plagues with the water to blood and the frog. Man, you've seen enough glory, right? And he says, God, show me your glory. Who are you, God? Who are you? And remember, he tells him, you can't see all of it. You would die if you saw it without it being filtered. And he tells him to hide behind the cleft of the rock. And look at chapter 34, verses 6 and following. It says, the Lord passed before him and he proclaimed the lord the lord a god merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty we see god's glory is manifested here in his character God's glory is who he is. It's not just a really bright light that blinds us. It's the very character and essence and holiness of God. And and notice the defining thing here is his loving kindness and his compassion for us. You see that? You want to experience and know and see and savor God's glory. Look no further than his love and his kindness towards us. That is what makes him glorious. Moses says, show me your glory. And he says, look at who I am. Look at who I am. And and remember, Moses, after seeing this, he goes back down to Israel and his face was what? Shining and bright. Because he had seen God in his glory. And and his only response, if you look at verse 8, he says, Moses, quickly, quickly. I love when, you know, like the authors just, they throw in a word. Hey, in case you were wondering, he didn't just, oh, I guess I should worship. Quickly, Right? Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. When we encounter God in his glory, our only response is worship. Our only response is worship. Have you seen the glory of God? You see, we'll never be living the lives God desires unless unless we become enamored with the person of God. Has your God become too tame? When's the last time you wept over the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God? When, when people encounter you, do they get the sense, like they do with Peter and John in Acts 4, that you have been with Jesus, that radiance? Man, you've been somewhere special. You've been with, it's like you've been with God. We too often, as Christians, I think, become like a, a husband who no longer looks at his wife admiring her beauty. Because he's become too accustomed to her presence. We're like the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. We've left our first love. Do you remember that first moment when you were in awe of who God was and his mercy for you? You remember that when you first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ that God would send his own son to die for you and you saw, God, I don't deserve this. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. 
Do you remember that heartfelt response and how sad it must be, how much it must break the heart of God when we struggle to lift ourselves up and worship him because we've lost sight of who God is. We've lost sight of how distinct and holy and glorious he is. Our hearts should worship. Maybe this morning God wants me, maybe he wants you to put fresh eyes on his glory to see it anew, the glory of who he is, the glory of who he is. All right, let's jump. First Kings chapter 18. I want to see. We're going to jump to another mountain. This mountain is called Mount Carmel. Some of you might know this story. Here you have a context further in the nation of Israel, and you've got Elijah, who's the prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom, who didn't have one righteous king, right? Over and over again, they just continue to dishonor God. And of all things you can do to dishonor and show no glory to God is to replace God with false idols, right? To say, I'm going to worship this. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a thing, maybe it's an idea. Over you, God, a counterfeit God. And Israel is doing that over and over again. And so he sends this prophet Elijah. You know, and there's an evil king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. And he, he calls Elijah to bring this great battleground. This, this, hey, we're going we're gonna to have a throwdown here. And he basically, they, they build two altars, right? And he says, the God who answers by fire, he is God. How long, Israel, will you labor between two gods? If Yahweh God is, is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Obviously, God shows his glory, right? He comes down in fire. The whole altar is just destroyed. It licks up. He poured water all over his altar. Baal does not answer. Baal does not answer. Shortly after, though, and this is where we're going to pick up in, in chapter 19, Jezebel, the evil queen, after she finds out her prophets were killed by the hand of Elijah and the Israelites for being false prophets, she says this in verse 2. So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So she says, I'm going to kill you, Elijah, for what you have done. He flees into the wilderness, it says, and he gets to this low point. You see, he thought Israel was about to have a reformation. They were coming back to the Lord. This was it. This was a revival that we've been waiting for. And he hits rock bottom here. He's like, I'm the only one left stuck in the wilderness. And he gets to this point. You see in verse 4, he says, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. You see that discouragement that he's experiencing? I, I feel like this verse could be the theme verse of 2020. <laughs> Do you ever think about that? Lord, it is enough. Take away our lives. This is no, like we're done. This is it, right? And, and when we hit this moment of sorrow, remember he had just seen God's glory. The fire came down from heaven. Can you imagine seeing that? Everyone had repented. They killed all these false prophets. But he so quickly, again, is short-sighted. And he misses out on what God is actually doing. God sends an angel to minister to him. And then he leads him from Mount Carmel to the wilderness to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. The same place where Moses saw the glory of God. He takes him back there. And he's hiding in a cave there. And God says, I'm going to pass by. And I want to speak with you. 
And if you remember in the story, he comes by, there's a strong wind, but God was not in the strong wind. There's an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. Then there's fire, but God was not in the fire. And then there was a low whisper. And God was in the whisper, and Elijah goes out and communes with God. You see, what God is trying to help us understand here is that even when it seems like he's not working, he is. God's glory is seen in his divine providence in the midst of the mountaintops and the valleys. You know, we always want to see fire on the mountain, but sometimes God is working just as much in the whisper in the valleys. And and we constantly say, God, I want to see fire. I want to see it come down. I want to see you move. I want to see repentance. I I want to see your work, the work of your hands. Maybe God is working, but just in ways we cannot see it. Maybe it's just a whisper. Maybe it's just a whisper. God is quietly and sometimes imperceptively doing his work. God will have his way. And again, like I said at the beginning, 2020 did not surprise God. The glory of God is still being made known in all the earth. God knew that this day would come. His glory will be known. We can know this for sure. And this is interesting because then he commands Elijah to go and anoint two kings and the person who was going to follow after him, Elisha. And and those men had the privilege, if you read further in the account in Kings, they were the ones who actually abolished worship of Baal in the land of Israel. And so even though in that moment, Elijah's like, God, I, I want Baal worship to be gone. We want to be devoted only to you, Yahweh. And Jezebel, Ahab, they're having their way. God says, no. I am working, sometimes imperceptibly. The glory of God is not always working in a way that we can see it, but he is having his way. Where is God working in your life for his glory? Maybe it's been a rough week or a rough year or a rough decade for you, but let let me tell you this. God is up to something. Will you participate in it? Are you going to sit on the sideline depressed that things are not going your way? according to your plan. Berean, God's plans are not hindered by the last few years we have. God is working a plan for his glory and our good. In the midst of change, in the midst of pastors coming and going, God is working for his glory and our good. Life is full of highs and lows, but God's glory and glorious working is permeating both like a fog that covers mountaintop and valley. God's glory is being made known. Do we see it? Are we looking for it? Okay, the last place we're going to go. And this is the cool part, if you're Phil. Okay, we're going to jump forward in the New Testament to Luke 9. Here, we find another mountain where God's glory is demonstrated in a powerful way. The Mount of Transfiguration. And we're going to start in verse 28 of Luke chapter, 20, or Luke chapter 9. It says this, Now about eight days after these things, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Sound familiar? But notice here, it's not because like Moses, he was reflecting glory. It was because he was being revealed as what he was glorious. And behold, two men were talking with him. Who do we see? Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Okay, you think these two guys show up, Moses and Elijah, two of the men of God in all of history who've seen God's glory manifested in ways all of us would say, I wish I would have seen that. And what do they want to talk about? What's coming in Jerusalem where Jesus is about to offer up his life to win back a people? They want to hear about this moment of glory that is coming. And they're there to minister with him and to him. And they're in anticipation of God's glorious action in our world. So Moses and Elijah show up. And and it says, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his what? Glory. And the two men stood with him. And it says a few verses down, verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Yeah, I I can see that. Yeah. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent about that. Can you imagine what they just witnessed? They witnessed a picture of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, God's glory is revealed in Christ. If you want to see the glory of God in your life, if you want to understand it and know it, if you want it to be that that true north that you consistently look back to, look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God. Hebrews 1 says this, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you want to see the glory of God, look no further than Christ. One of the most glorious demonstrations of who God is, is the cross. Where Jesus laid down his life. Again, remember back to Exodus, right? You had God saying, here's my glory. Moses, show me your glory. The Lord your God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But he must punish wrongdoers. What's the perfect picture of that? The cross, where God punishes Jesus for our wrongs and our sin. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the manifestation of glory. He's the manifest glory of God. Do you see it? Do you savor it? Are you ready to share it? When you get this picture of God's manifest glory, it completely changes our perspective. It should make the worst day or the worst week or the worst year look incomparable because we know and have seen the glory of God. You know, a few years ago, we were on winter retreat. And in just a second, I'm going to be done. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing one last song. Um, we take our high schoolers to this awesome mansion in Franklin, Pennsylvania. It's like this castle. And, uh, you know, we took, I think, you know, 70 high schoolers there. 
And we, you know, have three sessions where there's preaching and teaching and, and worship. And Saturday night, we were, um, we kind of switched things up, and I, I preached a sermon, and then we went into worship. And we sang a song called uh, The Great I Am. It just emphasized the greatness of our God and how amazing and awesome He is. Some of you were there that night. And it, it was, it, it's something special when you hear you know, a hundred people singing their hearts out to God, unhindered, not caring about anyone around them, especially, especially for me, teenagers, you know, who are normally so self-conscious, right? And here they are just pouring their hearts out to God. And, and we finished that last song, and, and I knew we needed to stay in that moment because it was evident that we were in awe, we were seeing and savoring the glory of God. And so we did it. I said, let's just continue in that moment. And let, let's pray. I said, let's just call out prayers. God, you are great because. And for the next 30 minutes, our students just cried out to God reasons for his greatness. You know, about 10 minutes in, someone cried out a prayer. God, would this family member see who you are through tears? And the tears spread throughout the room to about half the room was, was sobbing. Not wailing, but just sobbing. They, they were moved. And they were crying, they were crying out to the Lord in prayer, emotionally moved. And that led to fruit. They went to small groups and there was sin being confessed. There was prayer over brothers and sisters. And it was one of the most, it was the most amazing thing I've seen God do. See, when we see and we savor the glory of God, the dividing lines become clear. His mercy and his holiness. We just see, God, you are so much greater. I knew it was God moving because the prayers weren't about me. The prayers weren't, Lord, Lord, help me. It was like, God, you are so great and you are so good and we don't deserve you. What if we lived with that conscious awareness every day? What if we lived with this awareness of the glory of God? God is greater than anything 2020 can throw at us. When we see God's glorious character, his glory is who he is. When we savor God's faithful providence in the pursuit of us in the highs and the lows, his faithfulness on the mountaintops and the valleys, and his gentle low whisper, and we respond in obedience. And then when we share in the salvation of his glorious son, Jesus, who loved us so much that he gave his life for us on the cross. Let us not be a church that keeps the glory of God to ourselves let us let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Would you stand with me and let's just pray and commit this. God, I want to ask for you to show us your glory. May we become more aware of who you are and what you've done for us. Forgive us for being consumed with the little things of this life and help us to see the big things of who you are. Give us a greater view, a greater perspective of how great and glorious you are today. In Jesus' name, amen.